So if you were to travel north from Pittsburgh to Lake Erie on Interstate 79, you would cross Conneaut Marsh. It's also known as Geneva Swamp. So Geneva Swamp is the largest natural swamp in the state of Pennsylvania, and it is a particularly nasty one, really murky, and there's all kind of these like rural legends on just how deep it really goes, what's been consumed and lost by the swamp over the years. Now, when they were building Interstate 79, this particular stretch remained unfinished for years, and the reason is because building a bridge over that swamp proved to be very difficult. See, in order to secure the bridge, they had to anchor these pilings um, at bedrock so that the bridge wouldn't sink. And that makes sense, right? It needs a firm foundation for the bridge to have some support. So they would drill through the muck and the goop, but every time they hit what they thought was bedrock, they would go, okay, it's firm now, and they would start to build the bridge. But when they started doing that, all of the weight, all of the pressure of the structure actually broke through what they thought was bedrock to reveal another layer of muck and goop. And so they'd have to uh, restart the whole process, drill back down to try to find bedrock. According to PennDOT, some of the pilings had to go 200 feet deep into the swamp before finally reaching bedrock. See, we all know you can't build a firm foundation until you reach bedrock. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Jonah. And Jonah is unique among the prophetic books because most of the prophetic books are filled with the message of the prophet. But in Jonah, the message is not the main focus. What we find in Jonah is that there's, there's more biography than there is prophecy. See, Jonah is a book about God's relentless pursuit of Jonah. And in every chapter, we see the mercy and grace of God pursuing him. And with each chapter, you think God's grace has finally reached bedrock in Jonah's heart. You think that finally now God is going to be able to build on top of a firm foundation. But then the piling gives way and breaks through another layer, only to reveal another expanse of muck and goop in Jonah's heart. But the other thing we find is that God is relentless. He will continue to drill down deeper with Jonah to get to the bedrock of his heart. Now today in chapter 4, we come to the end of the book, and we're going to see the root of Jonah's anger and his animosity. We've seen it surface time and time again, and today we're going to really uncover what was, that, what was the root of his anger. God's going to have a conversation with Jonah, and he's going to drill down deep into Jonah's heart with his grace. And during that exchange, we're also going to see um, the response of God's patience. Where we might have given up a long time ago on Jonah, we see that God is patient. He doesn't give up on him, and he doesn't leave him in his sin. And finally, as we close out the book, we're going to see the reality of God's compassionate and steadfast love. So here's our outline for today. We're going to see the root of Jonah's anger. We're going to see the response of God's patience. And finally, we're going to see the reality of God's love. So look with me at verse 1 as we uncover the root of Jonah's anger. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. Now, if you haven't been with us or if you're unfamiliar or forgotten, let me quickly recap the book of Jonah. This is like that part where you're watching a new episode and it says previously on Lost, right? Okay. Yeah. 
What a disappointment that show was. We can talk about that later, but totally disappointing. Yeah, it was. But that's like been etched in my mind. All right. I need like some kind of group for that. Anyway. All right. So previously in Jonah, chapter one, God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and to tell them unless they repent and turn from their evil ways that judgment was coming. So Jonah hears that idea and he hates it and he decides to run. So he finds a boat headed in the opposite direction, but we find that God pursues him with a mighty tempest. This is a storm so furious that, uh, that, that professional sailors are, are beginning to worry about their very lives. This is not some small storm. So Jonah eventually tells them as they kind of figure out what's going on that God has sent the storm because he's running away from God. And so at Jonah's request, the sailors throw Jonah overboard and the sea immediately calms down. Now, Jonah probably thinks he's headed for a certain death, but God appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah and save him from drowning. Now, during his stay in the dark belly of the fish, in the depths of the ocean, Jonah finally gets some perspective. He repents of his running, and he actually prays to the Lord for deliverance. God answers his prayer, and the great fish vomits Jonah back up on shore. Now, in chapter 3, Jonah finally obeys. Now, we kind of see into his heart a little bit that it's really a half-hearted obedience, and he preaches this ominous and urgent message of the coming judgment of God. And we find that the most unlikeliest of people, the evil and wicked Ninevites, repent. They come to their senses, and the whole city goes into a, a state of repentance, And the Bible says that God saw what they did, that they turned from their sin, and he responds with mercy and withholds judgment. And you would think that Jonah's like, hey, like, that worked out pretty good. You know, he's a prophet. He gave a message. Like, if I gave a sermon like that and the whole city repented, I'd be feeling pretty good about myself, right? But not Jonah. In chapter 4, as we open up, we find that Jonah is shocked. He can't believe it. Apparently, God's grace and compassion are deeper and more freer than he ever imagined. And instead of allowing the reality of God's wide and vast love to deepen his own love for God, instead of allowing God's love to increase his capacity for compassion, increase his capacity for love, he becomes disgruntled, displeased, and despondent. And as the chapter unfolds, we're going to see that Jonah allows his anger to drive him to a place of isolation and even insanity. Look with me at verses 2 through 4 to see what I mean. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God. You're merciful, you're slow to anger, you're abounding in steadfast love. I knew you'd relent from disaster. Therefore, O Lord, please take my life from me. It's better for me to die than to live. Now, I do want to point out that even though Jonah is completely unjustified in his anger, at least he goes to God in prayer. And I wanted to point that out because in Jonah chapter 1, He hears from the Lord, and he runs immediately from God. We don't see him praying and even arguing or even uh, uh, going, Lord, I don't want to do that. That sounds awful. He just says, oh, that's what you want from me, and he runs. 
And he doesn't pray until he's in the belly of the fish. When things are at what, think, what he thinks is, you know, rock bottom. What we see, I want to point this out because we're starting to see Jonah's transformation, albeit slowly. God pursues us and his grace does work in us to bring about transformation. But listen, it happens much slower than we would like. Often, maybe this is your experience, we want the process of sanctification to be quick and instantaneous. Like we know where we might want God to take us. We know the, 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 the kind of the nasty places in our heart, and we wish that God would just take it away immediately. But that's not how God works. It's slow growth and progress over time. You get the impression that the human heart can't be changed unless it goes through the storm. So back to his angry prayer. In his anger... Jonah says, I just knew it. I knew you would forgive the Ninevites. That's why I didn't want to go. More than the fear of what would happen and what they might do to me, I didn't want to preach and give them an opportunity to repent because I knew you would forgive them. In fact, we know that he knows that because he throws God's character back in his face. He's like, you're so slow to anger. You're gracious. You're you're abounding in steadfast love. You're merciful. And you're the kind of God who who relents from disaster when people repent. Don't you kind of hear the sourness as he's throwing back God's good character in his face? See, at this point, Jonah is having a very hard time reconciling the love of God and the justice of God. He doesn't know how those two things could coexist. How could God be both absolutely loving and absolutely just. He knows the Ninevites have committed uh, egregious sins. It was known throughout the ancient world, and he knows they deserve justice, and he's absolutely right about that. He also knows that God's character is 100% loving. So how can those two truths be reconciled? And at this point in the Bible, that conundrum has not fully been revealed. And as is often the case in the Bible, God is asking people to trust him in the uncertainty, with the tension, without all of the answers completely filled out. You see, in our pursuit of control, we often want answers more than we want God. So as we move on, I'm going to leave that tension there. He finishes his prayer with an insane request, right? He says, God, just kill me. Just take my life. I don't want to live anymore. Take my life and end it. It would be better for me to die than to know that your grace and love has been extended to them. See, it's not that he's concerned about God's grace being extended to Israelites. He's probably for that. He just can't stomach the fact that these enemies of Israel would also be eligible for God's grace. So what's causing his anger? You see, often we think anger is the problem, but anger is really a symptom of a deeper problem. See, it's like if you see smoke in your house, right? At the point of seeing smoke in your house, smoke is a symptom of a deeper problem, right? Smoke is destructive, but when there's a fire, you don't want to merely deal with the smoke. 
You want to deal with the fire that's causing the smoke. In fact, I would say deal with the fire first, then figure out what to do with the smoke. Smoke in the house means there's fire somewhere. So what is the fire that is burning inside Jonah's heart that's causing all of this anger? Well, what we know is that it's the same fire burning inside everyone's heart. This is one of those areas where the Bible helps us understand the human heart. And we can look into Jonah's heart because the Bible says everybody to a person has a a disease in their heart called idolatry. We looked at this back in Jonah's prayer in chapter 2. Jonah said uh, in verse 8, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, when Jonah is praying this, he's not looking at himself. Ironically, and even tragically, Jonah is one of the least self-aware people in all of the Bible. When he says, you know, those who pray and cling to worthless idols forsake the grace of God, he probably has in mind those pagan sailors on the boat, or at least the people in Nineveh that he's going to. But he himself is oblivious to his own heart, that he too clings to worthless idols. So what do I mean by idolatry, right? We're not talking about like wooden statues or golden calves here. Most of the time in the Bible, that's not actually what we're talking about. He's not worshiping some handmade tokens. What he's doing is valuing something more than God and building his identity on it. That's what idolatry is. It's valuing something more than God and then taking that and building an identity on it. So let me build out this definition. Everybody places value on things. If we were to have a conversation and, and, we, and we looked at how you spent your time, how you spent your money, the things that you love the most, we, we would uncover your list of values. And whatever we treasure or value most, we worship. The, De, uh, uh, David Foster Wallace, who was an American writer, not a professing Christian, okay, he famously said in his Kenyan college commencement address, Right? He's got no stop, no skin in the Christian game. Right? Listen to what he says. He's given this address to college students. He's like, this is the best advice I can give you before you head out. He said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. So I don't even have to know your name Because you're a human, you worship. Everybody does. All it takes is a conversation and some time, and we can figure out what it is you worship. So for some people, it's money and materialism, right? They look at money and materialism, the things that it buys, and it provides security and relief from the problems of this world, as well as comfort and convenience that makes life happy and successful. For some, it's career and prestige, Job titles, upward mobility, recognition, all of these things give life purpose and reason to get up each day. For some, it's family and relationships, right? Marriage, relational connection, tight family bonds, that's what provides meaning and significance in life. Now, this list isn't exhaustive. We could keep going on and on, but it does represent some common American idols. Now, if you look at that list, you'll notice None of those things are inherently sinful. I'm not talking about um, these, these overtly wicked and evil things. Having a family, a career, and nice things are not sinful. So you can take a breath for a moment. But when they captivate your heart, 
when they are at the very top of your ultimate value list, when they are supremely valuable, when they're the object of your greatest affection and your highest worship, these really good things become cancerous things. And they start to eat you from the inside out. And just like cancer, it, it starts unbeknownst to you. The day cells turn cancerous, no one's going, oh, wait, I think I feel something, right? Nobody does that. You find out when symptoms and other problems start happening. And that's exactly how idolatry works. You think you own them, but the reality is they end up owning you. And you become enslaved to them. And you actually become like them. So here's some diagnostic questions to help identify the idols in your life. We're going to have them on the screen. If you're kind of the note-taking person, write these down. See, in a sermon, it might happen too fast to really do some processing. So you're going to want to look at these later on in the week. So here's the first one. What are you most terrified of losing? It's a great question to start getting at what you value most. What do you obsess about obtaining? When your just mind is allowed to, to wander, you think like, what fills your mind? What are you thinking? I have to have that. Everything in your life is organized around avoiding the things that you don't want touched and obtaining the things you want. Or what drives you? At the end of the day, what keeps you going? What is your motivation? What about this one? What is the one thing you could not imagine being happy without? When you think about what happiness looks like, when you think about your picture perfect, what is the one non-negotiable thing in there that you say, without that, like Jonah, take my life. It's not worth it without that. Or what's the one thing that without it, life would not be worth living? See, when you look at these questions, you start to see Jonah's idolatry, right? The, the, something is taken away from him and he's saying, guess what, now life is not worth living. God, just go ahead and take my life. But see, idolatry doesn't just stop there. Idolatry takes what you value most and it builds an identity on it. See, identity, everyone has an identity and our identity defines us. It's, it's the way you answer the question when someone says, who are you? When you answer that question, you are telling them, this is my identity. This is who I am. It tells us who we are and where our value comes from. It's the thing you tell people to go, I, I am worthwhile. I, I should take up the space that I do because this is who I am. We look to our identity to validate our worth. Our, our worth. So you say things like this, I have worth because, and then you fill in the blank. So it might go like this, I have worth because I'm a good pastor. So I could take a good thing like being a pastor and build an identity on it and think I am worthwhile. I have value because I'm a good pastor. Or maybe you say I have worth because I'm a good mother or a good father. Or maybe you say I have worth because I'm a good worker. When they need stuff done, they come to me. I'm the get it done kind of person. Or maybe you say I have worth because I'm a good provider. People who depend on me never go without. I'm reliable. I'm trustworthy. That's why I have worth. Or maybe, this one's so common, I have worth because I'm a good person. And whatever standard I've decided to create that category, I am a good 
person, and therefore, I'm valuable. See, whatever you build your identity on, it defines you. And when you build your identity on anything other than being a beloved son or daughter of God, then here's what happens. You become fearful, you become resentful, and you become ungrateful. Think about it. If your identity is wrapped up in your career, then anyone who threatens that, maybe it's a new boss, right? You'll start to feel like, you, know, you, you, you see this when, when, when a new boss, everyone's so, the person who's just building their, their, career, their value on that, who is this person? What are they going to be like? Are they going to fire me? Are they going to bring in their own team? You know, I got I to make a good impression, right? You start to see them get fearful and frenzied. Or maybe it's a new coworker, and they start being the next go-to guy. And what do you do? You become resentful of that person, right? On breaks or at lunch, you're like, who's this guy? Who's this guy think he is coming in here, right? You become overly critical of them. If your identity is wrapped up in how you achieve and perform, then you begin to compare yourself to other people's performance or maybe even the performance of your past. And you become frantic and frenzied to do more. Nothing is ever good enough. You don't know how to even begin to rest. Or if your identity is wrapped up in your things, as soon as the newness fades or when someone else gets just a little bit more, what happens? That drive to acquire begins again. It's an insatiable beast. And no one in this room is immune from any of that. It plagues all of us. It's the plight of every person in this room and anybody who's ever lived. Because no one decides if they get to worship. We only get to decide what we worship. So with this understanding of idolatry, let's look back again at Jonah as a case study, right? Jonah's idolatry, if you've been following over the last few weeks, is that he values his country, his ethnicity, his kind of racial identity as an Israelite, his status and role as a prophet to Israel more than anything. And the Ninevites threaten all of it. See, Jonah had a career as a prophet, and things were going well. He was, a, he was a prophet to Israel. He loved his job. And now he's been reassigned to the Ninevites. And he's thinking, no, 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 that's not who I am. I'm not a prophet to Nineveh. I'm a prophet to Israel. You see that? He, he's got an identity, and it's unmovable. And so when God comes in and says, no, no, I want to send you to a new assignment, it feels like he's taking his very identity. And we don't like that. And when you feel like your identity is lost, you're willing to say things like, take my life from me. The assignment is beneath him. Someone of his status shouldn't have to go to a wicked, nasty place like Nineveh. What will people think in his community if they find out he's been reassigned to Nineveh? Will they think, oh man, you couldn't, couldn't hang in, in Israel? You got demoted down to Nineveh? Oh man, that stinks. He also can't stand the fact that God would extend grace and love to the Ninevites. He's thinking, look, that kind of love from God, that kind of faithfulness is reserved for the people of God. And if the Ninevites can be included as part of God's people, then how special are we really, right? As Nineveh is elevated to receive God's mercy, it makes them feel like they're nothing special anymore. 
And when all of that is threatened, Jonah begins to run from God. He gets angry with God and he starts to suggest to God that he's gone way too far, that he's wrong for extending grace to the Ninevites. He even starts to say, if I can't have it my way, then just kill me. If you take away my identity, I won't know who I am. I'm nothing. It would be better for me to die. If I had to name Jonah's idol in one word, it would be this, control. Jonah loves control. If it were up to him, Jonah would never have been assigned to Nineveh, and he himself would have signed their order of judgment. Simply put, Jonah wants to call the shots and be in control. Pastor Tim Keller is really helpful here. He says, look, when you say, I won't serve you, God, if you don't give me X, then X is your true bottom line, your highest love, your real God, the thing you trust and rest in. Here is Jonah saying to God, who should, who, who should really be the only source of meaning in his life? I have no source of meaning. You see how that works? If you say, God, I'll follow you, but if you don't give me this, then I'm out. Whatever this is, that's actually what you value and worship more. Now listen to me. When our idols are threatened, we will respond with emotions and responses that are less than ideal. When your idols are threatened, you'll begin to worry, you'll have anger, you'll have jealousy, you'll have hate, you'll have ungratefulness, bitterness, unforgiveness. Those are all, that's the smoke in the room. And the fire is burning deep inside your heart. Now, often what we'll do when we see these ugly emotions come out, we'll simply just try to to cover them up, to manage or deal with the symptoms. But when you find these emotions in your life, that hate, that bitterness, that jealousy, all of those things, you need to see them as a gift from God because they alert us to the problem. When these emotions are spewing out of us, it's the smoke. It's the sign. It's saying there's a fire in your heart. Don't let it consume you. Don't waste your time trying to cover up the smell of smoke. Go after the fire in your heart. When the devastating fires of idolatry burn in our hearts, these negative emotions will flare up. We can either pretend they're not there or we can see them as a gift from God, alerting us to the danger. Here in Jonah's heart, the animosity, the ungratefulness, the bitterness, they all reveal the root of Jonah's anger, and it exposes the idolatry that's consuming his heart. He has overvalued his ethnicity and built his core identity on being a prophet to Israel. So now, let's stop looking at Jonah. Let's look at ourselves. What about you? Where are you overvaluing and building your identity on something other than God? I really hope you wrote down those questions. You need to take some time this week in prayer. Use those questions I mentioned earlier to begin to identify and list out the idols of your heart. Begin repenting of them, calling them sin. Repent and change from building your life on them so that you can build it on the only firm foundation, which is Jesus Christ. So that's the root of Jonah's anger. Now let's look at God's patient response. Verse 4. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? The Lord responds with patience. Instead of putting Jonah on blast and harshly rebuking him with all the reasons that Jonah is out of line, God responds with a question. Not a sarcastic one, but a a genuine question. 
is it good for you to be so angry? What would it look like in our conflict resolution if we didn't accuse people but started asking questions? He's asking, is your anger proportionate? What's causing your anger? See, God is trying to draw Jonah into a restorative conversation. Now, for sure, God wants to show him that his anger isn't justified, that he is, in fact, out of line and wrong, but his rebuke is gentle. It's loving. It's dignifying. It has the goal of restoration in mind, not condemnation. You see, he wants to restore Jonah to a place of relationship, not condemn him. God's trying to show Jonah that his anger is destructive and it's disproportionate, and he's trying to get at Jonah's heart. But we find that Jonah isn't ready to listen. Look with me at verse five. Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade for his head to save him from his discomfort. And Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah, so God tries to have a conversation with him. Jonah gets up and walks out of the city, sulking, and sits to the east of the city. And when he gets there, you got to remember this is kind of in the Middle East. He, it's hot and it's, it's dry and there's scorching winds. So he kind of makes a makeshift tent with whatever he can find, you know, on the ground there to provide some shade. To see if perhaps, maybe, he's looking down over the city, maybe the people of Nineveh will get tripped up. And the repentance, maybe they'll go back to their old ways. And from here, I'll have a great view of God bringing justice and destruction. But we find that the makeshift tent isn't adequate to provide shelter. And so the Lord provides a better solution. He causes this plant to grow up over Jonah, provide shade for his head, and a shield from the elements. It, pro- it protects him from his discomfort. And the Bible tells us it made Jonah exceedingly glad. Now, if you're reading the book, you realize this is the first time we've seen this guy smile right? He's been sulking. He's been angry. Now he's finally glad because of a plant, okay? Nothing has gone his way, and he's feeling like, man, now I finally caught a break. This plant just grew up here. It's pretty awesome. But notice, Jonah doesn't express an ounce of gratitude to the Lord for the plant. I mean, he's got to know. Plants don't just grow that quickly. It didn't just happen to grow right where I needed it. He should have known that that provision came from the Lord, But you see, Jonah's heart is entitled. He feels like he's owed a break. An entitlement is a weed that will choke out your gratitude. See, if you're in a place of entitlement, you'll never express gratefulness to God because everything is a right, not a gift. You'll think you're owed something. Look with me in verse 7. But when the dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm to attack the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die. And he said, God, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. Feels like conversations I have with my two-year-old sometimes, right? The next morning, Jonah wakes up and finds that his plant has withered. God is patiently but relentlessly pursuing Jonah. He says, okay, you're going to love that plant more than anything? I'm taking out the plant. 
And we've seen God do this over and over in the book. The word that was used here is appointed. It's used four times in the book to describe a means of God's pursuit. In chapter one, God appoints a giant fish to swallow Jonah. And now God has appointed a worm beneath the surface to attack the roots of the plant so that the plant withers as quickly as it sprouted. And with the sunrise, God turns up the heat, literally, on Jonah, appoints the sun and a scorching east wind to cause Jonah to become faint. So now he's hot and he's angry again. And I don't know about you, but when I'm hot, I'm really angry, right? God is breaking through another layer of Jonah's heart to get his attention. See, if God didn't love Jonah, he would have just grown cold and indifferent to him and just let him be. I mean, you wouldn't blame him, right? If God said, Jonah, I'm out. You'd go, well, you know, God had all those other moments with him. Serves him right, right? He just wouldn't get it. But God stays in the game. He could have just let him stay there and rot in his bitterness. But God loves Jonah and his love causes him to pursue him. And he's willing to change his circumstances by his sovereign hand to get Jonah's attention, to bring him to a place of transformation. And so we see Jonah start up again. He's hot and he's bitter. He starts complaining. He's wishing for death again. And again, God responds patiently. Remember, Jonah's already told him, God, you're a God who is slow to anger. You're patient and long-suffering. And so he engages Jonah again. He even asks him the same question. He says, Jonah, you never answered my first question. Do you do well to be angry? Is it good for you to be angry? And Jonah quickly responds back to the Lord. Yes, I should be angry. The plant was the only thing I had going for me. And now it's gone and I'm angry enough to die. And before we start, looking at Jonah with judgmental eyes, we, we do the same thing, right? Right? We get angry over little plants and things like that too. See, this object lesson stirs Jonah once more in his anger. It's like God is saying, listen, you cooled off for a bit, but you didn't see the problem. So let me, let me stir you up again so that you see the problem. See, Jonah still values control, and his anger reveals that root issue again. He values comfort and control more than he values God. The plant had provided some comfort, and now it's gone. He wanted to give the order of execution to Nineveh, but instead God extended mercy. Nothing's going his way, and his anger blinds him to what's really worth living for. But God continues to be patient. And if he's patient with Jonah, he'll be patient with you as well. He doesn't give up on him. He isn't indifferent. He doesn't withdraw. He's not aggressive. He doesn't strike down Jonah in anger, but he's patient, long-suffering, and his steadfast love is, is there to restore him. So we see God responds with patience. Now let's look at the last two verses so that we can see the reality of God's love. Look at verse 10. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Now the Lord tells Jonah in this conversation your pity and grief over the plant doesn't make sense. And everyone in this room gets it too, right? We, 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 we see it as a disproportionate response. And so God reasons with them. He said, look, you didn't plant it. You didn't labor over it. You didn't pay for it. You did nothing to make it grow, and you only enjoyed it for 24 hours. 
You've got nothing invested in this plant. Why are you so angry? Now, this is a subtle and gentle argument for Jonah to consider that maybe, just maybe, his anger and grief are actually about something else. You ever have these moments when, when you're angry, but it's not really about the thing, it's really something else, right? That's what's going on here with Jonah. He's angry, but it really has actually nothing to do with the plant. So the Lord goes on, and this is how the book ends, verse 11. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? You almost have to laugh at like the word cattle is the last verse in this book. Then the Lord says, Jonah, in case you forgot, Nineveh isn't some abstract concept. It's a city filled with people, with animals and things that I created and that I actually care about. I did cause Nineveh to come about. I have labored for them. They are my people and I care about them. I've got a lot invested in Nineveh. Thank you very much. Here's another thing. They don't know their right hand from their left. Here's what that means. It means that they lacked discernment and spiritual understanding about who God is and what it means to live in relationship to him. It means that they didn't have the scriptures and the law of God to guide them on how uh, to live a life that was pleasing to God. Now listen, just because they didn't have that, it doesn't mean that their evil was exempt. They're still responsible for their actions and their evil ways. Right? God would have been just to bring about judgment. But at the same time, God says they are spiritually blind, which is why I rose you up to be a prophet, to go tell them about who I am and what it looks like to live a life pleasing to me. I sent you to grace them with my word. God is saying to Nineveh, when I see Nineveh, yes, I see their evil, but I also see their need. I see their blindness. I see their need for compassion and redemption. And Jonah, I want you to see it too. He wants Jonah to develop a heart like his. See, if you had asked Jonah, hey, Jonah, have you ever sinned? Jonah would have given you a perfectly theological right answer. He would have said, of course, Everybody has sinned. Everybody knows that. But very likely, he would have added on a caveat at the end, just like you and I do. Yes, I've sinned, but I'm basically a good person, right? I've sinned, but I've never done the things that the Ninevites have done. Never, never trafficked in that kind of evil. And you know what? He would have been right about that too. He had never done the things that the Ninevites had done. But here's where Jonah would have been wrong. He thought that by comparison, since he hadn't sinned so egregiously, that he was mostly good in God's eyes and really didn't need God's grace and mercy. He thought that because Nineveh was so bad that they were way past and way beyond the point of God's grace and forgiveness. See, for Jonah, it makes sense for God to forgive his sins because in his estimation, his sins aren't that bad. And so God, you know, is not doing him a big solid. He's just, you know what, Jonah, you're almost there. Let me help nudge you just that last step over the line. And in his estimation, the sins of Nineveh are far worse, and they're well past the point 
of forgiveness. They're unforgivable people. And that's where Jonah has misunderstood the nature of God's love and grace. God is telling Jonah, no one is beyond my forgiveness and mercy. I don't know what you've done. I don't know most of you in this room, but here's what I can tell you. No matter what you've done, you have not outsinned God's grace. You are not unforgivable. At the same time, no one is entitled to it either. Everyone is equally in need of God's grace. Our sin puts us all on the same playing field. And God wants us to see the beauty of his grace. We receive his mercy and grace not because our sins are less evil than some other person. It's not a comparison game. That's not how grace works. We receive mercy and grace because God is in his character at his most fundamental sense, a God of love, and he chooses to do so. That's why we receive mercy, simply because God chooses to extend it. Jonah's having a hard time seeing that he's in as much need of grace as the Ninevites are. Do you remember how earlier I said Jonah couldn't theologically reconcile the justice of God with the love of God? So instead of trusting, with God, trusting God, Jonah got angry. And when your idol is control, you'll always demand answers from God instead of asking for faith to trust in God. You see that? He, in his control, he doesn't want God, uh, 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 he doesn't want more faith. He doesn't say, God, give me faith so I can trust in you even when I don't understand. He's saying, look, God, if you don't give me the answers, then I'm out on you. I'm out on your mission. And I'm out on what you've got going for me. But see, at this time in history, God hadn't fully revealed how he would be just and punish sin and how at the same time in his love and mercy, he would extend grace and forgiveness. But the beauty of today is that we stand on this side of the cross. We know how God resolves the tension between his justice and love. Look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 23 through 26. Paul says this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's what I said earlier. Everyone is on equal playing field. And all are justified by his grace as a gift, not a right, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation. That just means a sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So here's what all that means. Paul says everyone has sinned and therefore everyone is in need of forgiveness. And God in his grace offers that forgiveness as a gift. And that gift, though it's free for you and me to receive, wasn't free. Christ Jesus was the payment price. He was the atoning sacrifice. He took the punishment that you and I deserved. We deserved death for our sin, and Jesus died for us in our place so that justice could be served. And at the same time, everyone who receives that grace as a gift are forgiven and pardoned. That's why God can be just. He's actually uh, 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 bringing his justice to bear on sin, and yet at the same time, he can justify us who have sinned. It's not that no one goes punished. Christ takes the punishment we deserve. Again, Pastor Tim Keller is really helpful here. On the cross, the justice of God exacted full punishment for sin. 
and at the same moment provided free salvation for all who believe. On the cross, the justice and love of God fully cooperate, having their way and shine brilliantly. The reality of God's love is that it's deeper and wider and higher than Jonah could ever have imagined. You see, Jonah in his anger tells God, take my life for my sake, my life for me. Jesus in his love tells us, I give my life for your sake, my life for you. That's the gospel. That's how the book ends. Your Bible isn't missing a page. It ends on a cliffhanger. And so people have often speculated, what happens to Jonah? Did he learn the lesson? How, what was his response? And the answer is we simply don't know. And I think the end is intentionally left blank to get us talking so that we will take one final look in the mirror and ask, but what about me? You see, we're left speculating about what happens to Jonah, but you don't have to speculate with your own life. You can write that story. So how has God been pursuing you with his mercy and grace? What is God trying to teach you in this season where it seems like nothing is going your way? What have you loved and valued other than God and allowed it to define you instead of allowing God to define you? Have you become ungrateful for God's gift of mercy and grace and allowed that entitlement to grow bitter in your heart towards others? Has the reality of God's love become your foundational reality? Let's use this opportunity as a mirror to look at our own lives. Let's spend some time this week asking this que these questions for our own good and transformation. Let's pray.